Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm PJ Doran. I'm Dave Selecki. This week on Pit Pass, we have Tyler O'Hara and Brock Sellards. But first, here's the latest news in the industry. What's going on, Dave? Oh, a lot of racing to talk about this weekend. We had uh, Supercross Triple Crown in, um, in Arlington, Texas, and we also had some GNCC racing to touch on. But before I get too deep into that, PJ, what's your take on the Triple Crown? What do you think? I love the races. This was number two of three for the season, right? So you're a fan. I, I am a fan. I like seeing three main events. I think you lose a little bit in that you don't get to see maybe the qualifying during the main broadcast because there's so much actual main event racing. Yeah, and it, you get the same riders on the track at the same time three times in a row. So you got three additional, I wouldn't say additional gate drops because the same number of gate drops, but you got your main players on the track. Yeah, absolutely. So you get to watch Roxon and Tomac and Webb. And everybody else, you know, really duke it out. Yeah, the 250 class, what a race that was. It was, yeah. Well, we could start with that. It uh, turned out to be a, a Sexton win. He went 2-1-2 for first overall, which was great. McElrath right behind him. He finished 3-2-1 for second, and then Hampshire came up third. Hampshire was a surprise of the night in that class. He was just wreaking carnage on the pro circuit Yeah, he team. was. <laughs> he, he definitely uh, uh, he made some passes that uh, maybe got under a couple people's uh, – Outer skins, maybe. Let's if let's you just will. say he had a propensity for green motorcycles that night, because he, yeah, he 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 took out Smith, gave him a good parking, uh, took out Sexton, but he also took out Smith. He just had out for those guys. He was aggressive. It was good to see. He got his first uh, actual first Supercross win in that class. Yeah, and McElrath, as we discussed last week, had been so dominant. He still was absolutely fast, uh, but it didn't go all his way tonight like it previously has. No, he suffered from some Tomac-like starts and had to work his way up to third in the first moto, second moto, got up to second, third moto. He said, okay, I'm just going to start up front. It's a lot easier that way, and I can win the race that way. And that's how it turned out. And then Sexton didn't push it. You know, he didn't need it. He didn't need to win. He definitely gave him a run, though. I, d I would he have did. to say Sexton looked like he could run uh, McElrath's pace when he wanted to. He did. He did. But then he backed it down because he didn't need to win the moto to, to win the overall. So that put an interesting spin on that series because now you got two guys tied for first, two red plates next week when they go to Georgia. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, two red plates. Yeah, it's going to be awesome watching how this East Series plays out. And in the 450s, there was some excitement there, too. Oh, yeah, a lot of carnage there. As we know, we had a couple riders hurt. So the, the big word of the night is camelback. So that, that jump and that obstacle just wreaked carnage. First, it takes out AC in qualifying. So Ciancerillo's out now for probably the rest of the Supercross season with a broken collarbone. You think? It, I mean, well, we've seen riders come back from, it, from collarbones. It depends. They say if they played it, he can come back in four weeks. If they let it heal, it's probably six weeks. But still, it's going to pretty much take him out of the, the series for sure. The other guy it took out that was pivotal in the series was Cooper Webb. You know, he went down in that second moto and just rode the front wheel and flipped over and hit the concrete hard. It was, it was hard to watch. He bounced off the concrete. Yep, that is definitely uh, going to leave a mark. Uh, he's he's a superhuman athlete, so I'm sure he's going to surprise us with his ability to come back, but that's going to have to affect his performance in the upcoming races, one would think. Unfortunately, that puts him 26 points down on, on Tomac in first. So, you know, where's his season going? It's 
It's hard to say. That's a lot of ground to make up unless something major happens. I feel bad for him. He was really starting to starting to do well, but that was that obstacle just took a toll on uh, it basically I think three riders I know of for sure that suffered because of that camelback obstacle. Obviously Webb and, and um AC, but also Jimmy Dakotas in the 250 class. So it definitely, unless those guys sent it and got over that fourth hump, they were going to crash. So it was rough on everybody. Yeah, it, it definitely was a difference maker on the night. Uh, the rest of the track, I, I really enjoyed the racing. There was a lot of good passing, back and forth battles. Anderson, gosh, we've talked about how rough his season's been, and finally things go his way a little bit. A little bit until that last moto when he started out out front, and then I thought, well, you know, it's finally going to happen for him. And then I thought about what we talked about before, and wouldn't you know it, he ends up, uh, I think he ended up fifth in that that final moto. So he had a rough night. Tomac really, really took hold of it by that third moto. Just he owns the class right now. Roxon gave him a good run, and Roxon had a good stat going into that that event because he finished four triple crown motos in a row in first place and then Tomac came along so yeah it was uh it was interesting to watch Tomac uh got a horrible start in the first moto or the first race as it were first main and then main two he got a great start and he was gone no one even uh, got close to him it's good to see that he can uh fight from the back when he has to but it's wonderful when he doesn't have to because God, he's just so much faster than everybody else when he's going. Well, for sure, he had to work for it, that third moto. I mean, he started out, I think, about sixth or fifth and worked his way up to first. There's some couple guys fell down, but, you know, he worked it out. So Tomac with first with a 5-1-1, Roxon with second and a 1-7-2, and your boy Anderson with a 3-2-5. So that kind of shakes the points out. Tomac's starting to build a lead now. He's got about seven points, I think, on Roxon. And then it's a big leap back to Cooper Webb in third. So the points are shaping up. It's kind of headed where we've talked about before. It looks like Tomac's the stud of the class, and Roxon's close. And now with Webb hurt, who knows how that's going to go when he goes to Georgia next next week. Hopefully he'll be able to you know, ride and also compete. I guess that's the big question. Yeah, and seeing Cerullo, to your point, uh, likely out for the foreseeable races. He's always been... Uh this season been a front starter you know he's into turn one with everybody it's one less guy maybe who's uh gonna be challenging for that whole shot yeah for sure and uh the other guy i mentioned a couple of broadcasts ago uh justin hill just another good night he ended up sixth overall again on the semi-privateer mcr smart top motorcycles just uh he's making a lot of noise in that class and he's been the cream of the crop of the you know the second tier down over Stewart and even Plessinger, who's a factory guy, and Dean Wilson, Blake Baggett. You know, he's been ahead of all those guys. Justin Hill's been impressive. It's 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 really been a great series this year. I'm looking forward to this third and final Triple Crown race coming up. But until then, we've got some standard Supercrosses coming and uh, some real, real competitive racing, I hope. Yeah, and uh, I will continue to mention it. Uh, well, as we will be talking uh, with one of the competitors in the upcoming Daytona 200, Looking forward to talking to him and a couple others over the coming weeks as we lead into that crucial first road race event here in the here in the states. Got a pretty interesting trivia question this week. What do we got going on? Yeah, we do. This week's pit pass trivia question of the week is a really good historical question, recently historical anyway. 
What was the first four-stroke motocross bike to win a Supercross? Name the rider and what year? We'll look in on that later in the show. Look forward to the answer. All right. Welcome to Pit Pass. Tyler O'Hara, one of our uh, perennial favorites here at Pit Pass. Uh, We've interviewed him lots of times, and fortunately, I've gotten to meet, hang out, eat tacos, and drink beer with Tyler on occasion. Of course, after his racing duties have been fulfilled, one of our favorite racers to watch, who is going to be, hopefully, one of the front runners in the very soon uh, to come Daytona 200. Welcome back to Pit Pass. Tyler, what's going on? Hey guys, thanks for having me back. Just, uh, you know, enjoying my training and preparation, getting ready for Daytona 200, and really excited for the opportunity and looking forward to the challenge. And who are you riding with for this upcoming race, Tyler? I know there's a lot of riders. The class, I think, has now cleared the 60-plus mark of entries. There's a lot of seasoned veterans who maybe aren't racing entire seasons like you have very recently raced entire seasons of road racing. Who are you riding for? So so this year, basically, you know, we're, we got the same program that we had last year. Last year, we had Floyd's of Leadville come on board as our title sponsor for Daytona 200. And basically, this is going to be a one-off race like we did last year and, and been preparing all winter and actually ever since we left Daytona last year. Amtech Motorcycles is uh, and Matt Warbus has built the bike all winter and and feeling very prepared. Basically, running our own program, we're riding a Kawasaki Ninja 636. Uh, we picked up from KMB Motorsports here in Petaluma and got a little support from Kawasaki USA with that. And um, everything's in house. You know, we uh, bought the bike and we built the bike. We got equipped with K-Tech suspension and you know all the good parts, spark exhausts and and just really happy with the build and you know last year for us it was uh everything kind of came together last minute as far as sponsorship and and we kind of just threw the deal together and you know go to daytona and kind of just see how we how we'd fare we had some good pace and we actually had the fastest trap speed last year with our bike and and um qualified fifth and just the consistency wasn't there just not really enough time on the bike but basically this last year we um developed the bike all year and and i'm feeling a lot more confident and comfortable on the bike and um really looking forward to the uh to the challenge man i've been been training my butt off and and we went and did a two-day test this last weekend at sonoma raceway and and had a very productive test and we got a couple new uh crew guys and uh some new you know fuel dump can and a new real quick change and and we're going to go test the weekend before at Jennings GP as well and practice our pit stops some more. So everything's on track, and um, my plan is just stick to the plan. So, Tyler, I saw some video of you testing at Sonoma, which was pretty cool. Now, what, what were you guys working on specifically when you were at the track? Were you trying to dial in handling as an engine tuning? What's, what's the usual approach? So Saturday we just worked on our chassis setup. I had a different set of forks. K-Tech forks, but we had a different valving and spring rate, and uh, it was like night and day, and I'm really glad that we got to uh, to try that because we were kind of going around in circles with the forks that we had, and it just wasn't getting any better, and we're testing the fork settings and, and uh, spring rate, and then also uh, we made some uh, clutch stack um, adjustments. Uh, we're like, you know, we found that sweet spot, let's say that. And then um, I tested some tires, and uh, that was a big one. 
and uh, I'm going in a different direction this year, which I think is going to be a, a real big advantage and um, put us up front. Tires are ultimately very important at Daytona, as we know. That's sometimes the, the make or break, right? Yeah, you know, it's important. And, um, you know, I got a good opportunity and a, um, and a good deal I couldn't pass up from, from Pirelli. going to run the Pirellis this year at Daytona. And, you know, this Kawasaki Ninja 636 um, really likes that front tire that they got. I don't know if you watched the race last year, but uh, Kyle basically rode away from us in the infield. By the time we got onto the banking, he was already checked out. So uh, that had a little something to do with, um, you know, my decision. But um, basically I went back-to-back on tires and and then slept on it, and that's the decision I made. That's a big one. I mean, that's uh, no small thing, but it sounds like you're going to get the testing uh, that you need on that, Tyler. What are your realistic goals? Are you are you aiming uh, top of the box as the only satisfactory outcome? I mean, you guys uh, definitely, uh, I would say, were contenders last year. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Last year was all about just getting our feet wet, not necessarily getting our feet wet. This is this would be the third time I've raced in the 200. You know, I got good juju at Daytona. I've won Daytona twice on the Harleys. And, uh, you know, I'm aiming to win the thing. I really want that watch. And, uh you know, we got the the crew chief Gary Medley. He's won it four times, and and we got Matt Warbus at M Tech. He's uh, he's won it as well with Gary back in the day with uh, Scott Russell, and and um, you know all this preparation and hard work and everything that I've been doing preparing is is to win. And um, you know I'm not going to beat around the bush or anything like that. I you know I'm going to win, and that's that's my plan. And it's definitely not going to be easy. Last year I kind of was a little bit laxed on my game plan and kind of was just did not really showing off my motor and was just kind of sitting there kind of approaching it like a like a last lap draft pass to the finish when really I need to attack the whole race and, and approach it like a 57 lap sprint race and and uh you know last year our pit stops really what um kind of you know killed our race effort really in our consistency I wasn't I wasn't as consistent as I needed to be um, as far as mid-race and stuff like that. But I got a lot more time on the bike now and really happy with our motor package this year. We got the motor just a tidbit better, and, and uh, it's already a strong motor to begin with and just basically the chassis and, and feeling comfortable. Tyler, are you uh, are you in any – I mean, are, have you got plans lined up for this upcoming road race season beyond Daytona? We've talked to a number of racers a lot of whom are racing Daytona 200 that haven't exactly got their year's plans ironed out. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, a fair number of guys are going flat track racing who might otherwise have been road racers in previous seasons. What's this year looking like for you after Daytona? Well, I'm all in for Daytona. That's my main focus. And basically, uh, I might do a wild card uh, Ninja 400 Um Entry for uh, Josh Cernay. Um again, like we did last year, I ran him at Sonoma Raceway and Laguna Seca. So just kind of giving him an opportunity to uh, finish what he started and that's go try to win a race. And then uh, we might do some East Coast stuff, maybe Indian and Pittsburgh. That's kind of uh, tentatively uh, something we have in the works as far as proposals and stuff. But if we get the funding, it'd be fun to go do and and maybe get a second rider and just kind of do more of the mentoring and the, the team manager and, and uh, the coaching. That's kind of what I have on the back burner as far as, uh, you know, the season, doing more coaching. And, and uh, I got a 
two Ninja 400s. I do rental coaching, and then uh, I bought one of the Ovale 190s, and I rent that out and coach on that as well and, and train on it as well. But, uh, yeah, maybe some wildcard 400 stuff, and then uh, I really don't have any um, plans to go race Moto America. So, Tyler, in, in your past, you've done some Supermoto, and I know they've got a program going for 2020. Is there any thoughts of trying that again? Well, there's uh, there's State Line Supermoto, which is the Anthony Hart Memorial Race, where uh, Pop Hart basically puts up twenty five thousand dollar purse, and it's funny because it's you know it's basically in a, a rundown parking lot, but there's a big purse, and and it and it makes it worthwhile that you can go and make a little money. I haven't committed to that. I'm just really just all completely focused on Daytona at the time right now. But last year, basically, that was included in the um, AMA Supermoto Championship. It's always a lot of fun. It's kind of always a slam fest or, you know, kind of short course, you know, little rubbing racing kind of a um, race. But uh, I have my supermoto bike ready, and once I get through Daytona, I'm, I'm, we'll see what we we'll see what happens. Seems like they, they kind of spread it out all, all across the country. They even have a round in Hawaii, I think, and one in Belgium. I'm pretty sure. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty elaborate schedule. I was surprised. Is that right? Yeah, see, uh, I haven't even looked at the schedule to tell you the truth. Belgium is something that, you know, I think every supermoto racer in America would like to go do the Belgium, you know, superbikers. That's something, I, you know, maybe in October or something would be fun to go do if my schedule allows it, but it's a big effort as well. So how are you digging that? You mentioned the Ovale. That's uh, Ovale, uh, the, the mini GP bike. Those things are clearly awesome it looks like more and more people are getting into it is right now is there a, is there a series racing those on the west coast tyler is that what's going on with them yeah there there's a, a norcal mini moto or mini gp championship that they got running locally and then there's the supermoto usa where they have a mini gp class as well Basically, uh, I sold my Harley, my XR1200 that I won a bunch of races on to Bartels Harley-Davidson. That was my sponsor when I ran the Harleys. So they uh, they got the bike down there on display. And uh, on my way home, I sold one, and I had to come home with one. I ended up buying the Ove on the way home. And basically, uh, you know, everyone else has got one, so i got to have one. And, and uh, you know what? I was really kind of nervous as far as, uh, you know, the price point and for what they were. And I was a little bit nervous it wasn't going to be enough on the cart track. But uh, I have to say, I've uh, I found something the last time I rode it. It's uh, mid corner, that first third of the entry into the corner, and just carrying momentum. And with the small wheels, it really emphasizes all your uh, your riding. You got to be really smooth and on your feet, on your on the balls of your feet. And uh, it's fun. It's a it's a it's not for kids, man. That thing is no joke. It's got it's it's a fast little bike. Yeah, which one? Yeah, I assume you bought the top the top tier one. They've got a number of uh, displacement levels on that machine, and ultimately full trim levels. You know, the top one is a bit of a beast. Daytona right? one ninety. That's the one you went with, right? I would have to assume. Yeah, and then the brakes are good, and the suspension's you know decent, and the tires are good, and just something I had to have. And and now I'm basically uh, training on it. And then if anyone, any younger you know kids that have some experience can give them an opportunity to go out and ride it. I foresee some epic battles on those. At some point, the stars are going to align, and we're going to have a bunch of racers of your caliber, Tyler, maybe past their, or nearing the ends of what they might call their competitive careers. I foresee 
a race someday with all of you guys on those things because just like you, everybody else has got one just in case I need it for something. It sounds like. Well, you know, the MotoGP guys have them, and you know, Vinales and and uh, you know, Hasif Siren and Rossi's got some mini bikes, and you know, and 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 I think the whole theory, you know, it's almost like taking a step backwards, but it's really just staying sharp and on top of your game and and moving forward. And the, the small 12-inch wheels is really what what you got to learn that corner entry and how fast you can tip in and and carve and get through the corner and and really emphasizes all your body english too you know the stuff that when you can get away with on a big bike it's really emphasized on the small wheels it's all about momentum at that point yeah yep well tyler it's been awesome talking to you we're so excited for your upcoming effort at the daytona 200 uh is there anybody you want to thank? I know you're running your own program, so you get to say thank you to yourself for keeping it up and out there. But uh, anybody else you want to give props to? Yeah, you know, basically, you know, Floyd Landis, um, poor professional cyclist, you know, is Floyd the Leadville. He came on board last year and believes in me and put this effort and gave me the opportunity to run my own program and kind of give me the ball to roll with it. M-Tech Motorcycles um, up in Bend, Oregon, they've uh, built my bike to be a race winner and and uh, Matt Warbus, he's um, responsible for that. Moto Oil for sticking with me over the years. Um, Bill at Moto Nation, CD Boots, always get me supplied with nice boots and most comfortable. Audrey at Moto Liberty, RS Tai Chi, Evo Technologies, Moto D, Spark Exhaust, Core Moto Brake Lines, Skip at Orient Express, K-Tech Suspension, Brandon at K&B Motorsports, Oscar at Pirelli Tires, thank you for the opportunity and uh, supplying me with some good rubber this year. Really looking forward to running those. Of course, 60 helmets for keeping me safe and giving me give me the confidence to go out there and go fast. And and uh, Motion Pro, everyone, my my wife, you know, this has uh, been not challenging, but it's it just you have to be selfish to train and and get prepared for these. And without her support and my family, you know, it wouldn't be possible. Well, thank you so much, Tyler O'Hare. We're looking forward to uh, how your effort goes at Daytona 200. Look forward to seeing you uh, hopefully at some point this season, man. It's been a lot of years. Uh, We've been watching you, and uh, you're one of our favorites from Pit Pass, one of the favorite racers we follow. So thanks again for joining us today, and good luck at Daytona. Thank you guys very much. Really appreciate it. We're ready. Thanks, Tyler O'Hara, super fast racer going to Daytona. Dave, what was the answer to that interesting trivia question this week? Yeah, well, let me read the question one more time. It was uh, this week's Pit Pass trivia question of the week was, what was the first four-stroke motocross bike to win a Supercross named the rider in the year? Well, I remember this. It was 1998, Doug Henry on the Yamaha YZ400F. So that was a special, special motorcycle. Yeah, and a special racer, Doug Henry, still out there inspiring people and still shockingly fast on him. It's just insane. It's insane what that guy can do with limitations. With with limitations, Doug Henry can do things most humans could never even dream of doing on a motorcycle. I was just watching a video of him riding a full-on motocross track, and the dude is flying. I yeah. mean, flying. He hasn't lost a step at all, just keeps keeps hammering. He's always been that guy. And I do remember this race. It was Las Vegas Supercross because it was a really, really – it was a track that favored a four-stroke, but at the time none of us really knew 
that that was favoring a four-stroke, but it was dry and slippery, and that four-stroke just hooked up and connected with the track where all the two-strokes were just dancing over all the bumps and obstacles. So he he put that power to use and won the first race. And and really, that's what we call a bellwether moment, right? That's when racing changed for dirt bikes. Yep, and I remember right around that very time frame, within a year or so of that win, you started seeing 400s in the back of pickups. I did in Iowa. So I have to believe in the in the more moto-friendly areas of the world, it was already happening in California, the East Coast. You'd, local riders and even in Iowa were already starting to get into the four-stroke generation. Yeah, I would say by 2003, 2004, it was over, and everything was starting to switch over. And, you know, the last holdouts and two-strokes were, were starting to fall off and convert over. And it hasn't been the same since. It really altered the sport in many ways, and in some ways good. I'm not saying in a bad way. It just changed it forever. And uh, it's not a bad thing that uh, that four-stroke motorcycles are here to stay, but you hear a lot of guys kind of pine for the old days, right? And there's definitely, I mean, working in the industry at a dealership, Hicklin Power Sports, where I sell Yamahas and KTMs, and for that matter, Betas, very good cross-section of the off-road world. We never don't carry two-strokes, and with the new TPI technology, it, I would not count two-strokes out just yet. They seem to, again, they never went away, but there seems to be a current resurgence, particularly in the off-road world. I wouldn't say so much on the motocross world, but in the off-road world, two-strokes are really fighting back right now, it seems like. And it's good to see. I think if that technology applies to two-strokes, that could be the next evolution you know, of the off-road bikes for sure, because I think for sure the two-stroke applications, the the platform works very well for off-road, just simply because of the weight, the ease of maintenance, you know, just it's it's a more sensible bike for off-road. The power's more sudden and available. So, you know, you're not dealing with the weight, and that's, I think, the big difference. Yep, that's the big win. Uh, The saddest thing for me is that two-strokes, one of their many advantages, not only lightweight and immediate power was less expense because they were less technologically advanced, had fewer moving parts. They could be sold at a lower price. The advent of TPI and what I'm sure will be from other manufacturers, similar systems results in they're every bit as expensive as their four-stroke siblings, so there is no longer a cost savings. Good point. Good point. And who's what's the cross section of riders? Is it more vet related guys, or is it younger riders that are coming in and purchasing two strokes? What do you see? I would say it is. I would say it is vet guys primarily. You know, of course, the the biggest two stroke uh, group of customers is the young rider because 50s, 65s, and 85s are in fact two strokes and only made that way, with the exception, of course, of Honda's brilliant 150R uh, in that category. Everything else is two-stroke for the young kids, so they're starting life on two-strokes. But, yeah, they seem to really want to convert right away, probably because they're heroes riding in the Supercross series on 250s and 450s or on four-strokes. Yep, and so there it is. That was a big moment in time for for motocross and Supercross racing, and it's something that, like I said, changed the sport forever, and uh, I don't know if we're ever going to look back. All right, coming up next here on Pit Pass Moto, we have a guest who's from Ohio. He's a native of Ohio, retired racer, riding coach, airplane engine builder, and track builder. 
He does it all. Brock Sellards. Brock, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Good, good. So what do you, uh, besides the things I mentioned, you're also a guy who's working in the industry. What do you, uh, what are you doing these days? I'm a sales rep for Northeast Ohio. I work for Western Power Sports out of uh, Boise, Idaho, and uh, this is my 11th season doing so. Awesome. Well, Western's, uh, that's an outstanding aftermarket company. They do a lot of things. They've, uh, they brought along the Fly brand, which is just everywhere in, in off-road and motocross. Yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive to think back of when they started. I don't think there was a pro racer that would wear it. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was like very uncomfortable. I mean, they basically just went and made it at a t-shirt factory and just had some gear. And to see it evolve throughout the years to where it is now was like mind-blowing because... It is like its own company inside Western Power Sports. It is huge, and it has done nothing but climb the scales of as far as you know the racing industry is concerned. Yeah, I agree, and they've gone up against some heavy hitters in the industry because you've got major brands like Fox and Thor out there, Answer Racing, and they've they've really brought it. And they really, I think, what they've done a good job of is penetrating that grassroots level, getting as many grassroots level racers into that gear invisible is is really been the thing that's you know helped them get to that point i think absolutely we had from the get-go we had a helmet called a, a kinetic helmet and it's a price point helmet that came in at around a hundred dollars but it looked like a four hundred dollar helmet and that helmet alone had taken off i, I remember when i was first working it was the number in our entire company of what we had for sales is just the kinetic helmet. I mean, it was that high in our entire company, and you can imagine how many catalogs we have to be that high. So whenever you went to the track, you saw tons of fly helmets, and then, you know, the fly gear just kept growing and growing and growing, and it was big in the ATV world, really big into ATV racing and stuff like that, and and it's kept growing in motocross and supercross and, and actually in GNCCs and stuff. So it's, it's amazing how far it's went. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a, with, that, with that backing be, with Western and just being the biggest and penetrating into all the dealers, it's just a, it's a great story. It really is. Shifting gears just a little bit, Brock, talk about some of your history. You're a guy who came out of Loretta's. You had great success down there, won some classes, graduated to motocross, were a professional motocrosser for a long time, I think nine years or more, motocross and supercross both. And then you graduated to, to arena cross. But just thinking through that whole thing, who was your biggest competitor when you were out there at, you know, at the premium level? Who was the guy that you, know, you really, really fought with the most when you were out there? Well, the first two years of my career, as far as going to Loretta Lenz in racing, it was a kid named Andy Boyer, which Clint Boyer, the NASCAR racer, it's his brother. Clint never seemed to be much of a, a dirt bike guy. He's more of a car guy but Andy was really fast and then his best his best friend was Ricky Carmichael who was pretty small at the time but he ended up growing up and uh becoming my biggest competitor throughout I mean I, I unfortunately I lived in the Ricky Carmichael era so that's a tough era to live made, through in racing <laughs> made me for sure. a bridesmaid most of my life but it also Ricky also gave me the opportunity whenever I was in school to, uh, I actually left and went to Tallahassee, Florida, went to Leon County High School with him. His mother 
teach the learning disabled uh, class, and Ricky and I went to uh, went to our classes, and they gave me an opportunity that that I didn't have, and I, I'm blessed to have that. It totally changed my career. Uh, I had a rough year at Loretta's, leading up to the first year I went to Ricky's, and when I went down there to Tallahassee and rode every single day by we call our meanie genie Carmichael <laughs> meanie genie. I've heard the stories. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I love her to death and she don't take no crap. You would, uh, you mess around, you go for a long walk and, uh, you come back and you put in your laps and hopefully you get out of there. But, uh, it totally changed my perspective of how you do it. I mean, who teaches you? We didn't have riding facilities when I was younger. So I was just lucky. She, she basically set, the bar for how things should be done and other people you know afterwards kind of followed suit like Millsaps, Colleen Millsaps and with GPF and MTF and stuff like that but you know they they kind of they kind of set the bar really high and they still do to this day. That was that era when those training facilities started to prop up everywhere you know pop up everywhere I remember it wasn't long after that and how come uh, Meanie Genie never caught Ricky running to uh, McDonald's? I don't know. Uh, I, I'll tell you real quick. Funny he was known story. for sneaking out every once in a while. The funniest story is we we get to Pro Circuit. We're, we fly to California. My first time there. I'm going to go meet Mitch Payton, and we were at the time I I don't remember. I might have been in the B class, and he was on 80s and Super Mini. And we fly out there, and we uh, we stop at. In and Out Burger, which is on Surface Club Drive, right, right before you get to Pro Circuit. I'm, I'm familiar. I've been to that very In and Out Burger, actually. <laughs> so he's like, "Oh man, we got it. I'm starving. We got to stop." And I'm like, "Oh man, you know, it's a burger joint, okay." And then he's telling me it's not on the menu, but you have to get this four by four animal stop. And I'm like, "Well, what is?" It? He goes, "Don't ask, just get it." So <laughs> I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" So here they make four pieces of meat, four pieces of cheese, four sauce on everything all the works this thing's so big I, there's no way i can fit it in my mouth and here you get these big old pile of fries and we're, we're like trying to scarf it down while we're going into you know meet mitch and i'm thinking this is probably the worst idea i've ever had but <laughs> i always awesome. just timid so we get into pro circle we walk in mitch is there he's he's in his wheelchair he's messing with something he instantly quits comes over to talk to us Looks at me, looks at Ricky, goes, was you guys at In-N-Out? <laughs> and you? I was like, oh, white, no. I was white as a ghost, man. You could read right through me. Here I am. A, a meeting Mitch Payton of all people, right? Yeah, Mitch Payton's like <laughs> calling us out. And I, I cannot make eye contact with him because I am scared that I'm, I'm, I'm getting fired in my eyes, you know. <laughs> so he's like, no, what makes you think we did? He's like, come here. He's like, Because no, he knows Ricky, why? that's why. Yeah, he's like, come here. And he's like, no. And he's like, come here. So he's on his wheelchair. He gives it one quick little roll forward and grabs a hold of Ricky's arm, sniffs his fingers and says, in and out fries, you lied to me. <laughs> and he, he just left. He was so mad he just left. Because at that time, Ricky was pretty chubby. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he loved to eat. And, yeah. it, you know, it wasn't until his after his rookie year that he took training seriously he took riding seriously but not training so right. that was uh that was probably my funniest story that i had because it wasn't funny at the time but looking back at it me and mitch 
we can we can still laugh at that one because he he knew and he snipped his dang fingers. I'm like, this guy's smart. <laughs> he is. He is. You're not going to sneak anything past him for sure. That, that is awesome. So do I understand this correct, Brock? You are an airplane engine builder. Is this a side gig or is this just a hobby that you're building airplane engines? Uh, it was actually my business when I was done with uh, racing. I got into uh, doing arena cross, which was only during the winter time. So you get a little bored during the summers. And I didn't, I was over just traveling anymore. I just wanted to enjoy, you know, I have a hundred and some acres. I just wanted to hang out at my house. So I built a runway. I already had a hangar on my property when I bought it. So I'm like, ah, this ain't bad. So I got, I got my pilot's license in 2006 and then started flying. And I started looking at, now we're talking about airplane engines that are on little two seaters and in the experimental air class field, which every time somebody hears that, they're like, I would never fly anything with the words experimental. But uh, <laughs> basically, it's a motor that is a two-stroke Rotax motor that is half watercraft, half snowmobile. And it was engineered probably in the 70s. And a lot of the things on it, because, you know, I'm used to a, a dirt bike. You know, when this was the four-stroke era, where you're starting to put every little bit of everything makes this much more power, this much more durability. And I'm looking at this motor going, okay, I just went back in time. So I couldn't, like, I started reading and I started, like, updating the engine. So I I had my own, like, aftermarket engine company where I was uh, with Dave at Wiseco. We created our own pistons for him. I actually took out the steel sleeve liners and made aluminum sleeve nickel sealed liners that I had done at Millennium Technologies. And because one of the problems with those motors is the piston gets hot and seizes to the steel sleeves because they don't heat up the same. So there's a, there's a lot of like, it's just an old motor. So I updated them and put COA bearings into them instead of the plastic race bearings and did a bunch of things to make them more modern and there was a lot of people looking for more longevity out of them. So it was actually a really good business to get into. But then Western Power Sports, I had approached them at Indy about wanting to be a rep. And the spot in my territory opened up and I had to take it. So uh, and, and I don't regret one one bit best decision I probably ever made in my life. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, I think you getting in there has been uh, – it, it brings a lot of credibility to a company like Western having professional – racers involved with their program you know the, the the dealers recognize that and everybody in ohio knows brock and i think that goes a long way yeah it was definitely an easier transition i would say for me than maybe some other new refs just because you know obviously i went into dealerships and they're like man brock's here well, what's he doing he's our rep so it was like i didn't have to worry about like a trust thing or people building up any type of a relationship i already had a relationship through the sport even though i didn't know them personally i had i had a common ground that we could talk to and and it helped me get a foot in the door and and be successful right out of the gate what do you see going on in the the industry uh, brock as as you go to dealers and you service these guys routinely and you know it's it's the one-on-one visits with the owners and the parts managers working on parts sales and things how is that working as compared? Are there any e-tailers involved, too, in those conversations, or is it solely dealerships or dealers that maybe work as e- e-tailers, too? Well, it's kind of made a shift, kind of like what you would watch 
online, you know. Go back as far as like when eBay started selling stuff. There was a lot of people like New Egg and a bunch, and they're still around, but everything was popping up and everybody thought that they could start an online business and, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. and that, you know, and all, a lot of dealerships was like, oh, that's the wave of the future. Let's start an online. And you, so we built programs where we can hook you up to get you started right away on, on doing that. The problem is, you know, buying power is everything in every sport. So, yeah. or in every business, I won't say sport, but business. So with that being said, it seems like the big get bigger and the small lean themselves out and they can't can't succeed. So what I've noticed is the big players, which is your, you know, Rocky Mountains, your Revzillas and stuff like that, that are online and have, you know, a store, they sell everything in Chaparral. Now the small smaller shops to be able to compete, they can only focus on like a, a couple items and they gotta be really good at those couple items to have an online presence. So the online thing has gotten humongous because let's face it, it's pretty nice to sit at your house, order something and, and get it two days later. And, but there's a lot of setbacks from that, you know, like if it isn't what you wanted, if it doesn't fit, if it's any error, you got to send it back and you got to wait and you know, you you got to go through a bunch of crap that you don't have to through a brick and mortar. So they had to implement like map pricing, which is manufactured advertised pricing or whatever. I think that's what it means. But it basically that protects the brick and mortar from online going. Yeah. Going too deep on discounts. Exactly. Yeah, Too yeah. deep on discounts. So that, so that has helped a lot. Now it's hard, hard to manage map and there's a lot of courts you got to go through there, but it has, definitely help brick and mortar survive and and without brick and mortar our industry is toast i mean it you can't buy bikes you can't service them online agree 100 so, what say you pj we have to have it i would totally agree and i was just curious brock i mean western is huge and one of the the big i work at a dealership a multi-line dealership we've got a good cross-section of brands in the most startling thing to me in the last eight to ten years has been the prevalence of the side-by-side market, ATV, off-road portion of the of the the overall dealer market. Are you seeing the same borne out? I mean, it really is a, a lion's share of our business currently. Well, the the thing that the UTV market uh, has brought to our sporter industry is. They brought the the mom and dad and the family into the power sports industry because, let's face it, some people are car people, so they're into motorsports. But it's the bridge between cars and and two-wheelers, I I would say. So it accommodates everybody. So it has grown so big because anybody can drive them. it isn't like you're on a dirt bike and it's a major risk factor. You can have four seats. You can have two seats. You can take them on a track and take them on trails. You can drive them on the road. You can use them around your farm. I mean, it's just all around the best answer you have as far as power sports to accommodate everybody. Where you're at a niche market when it comes to, you know, motocross or supercross or off-road, you know, uh, any, anything else. I mean, that, like sports quads. I mean, I don't know. I think there's one manufacturer left that even makes them. Uh, it's just 
all that has gone by the wayside and, and the UTV market has just taken over. Yeah, it absolutely has. It's, uh, it's said often uh, by a lot by a lot of uh, different corners of the market. You know, they're propping up brick and mortar stores, and again, as part of one, I appreciate the business. And you're right; it's bringing in families that otherwise might never have set a foot in a dealership. Now they're in there, and maybe you know, there's probably this. The percentages are probably the same as to which percentage of a family is gonna say, "I want that dirt bike over there." Now at least they're getting to see one. Yes, I think also. The roots guys that like the motocross and stuff like that are always wanted a dirt bike and really didn't have one or only got to ride one little bit. I really think, like, from my generation growing up to now, a lot more people are better off. They have more money. And I was talking to a guy today about his kid, a 110, and his, his youngest son, a, a, an XR50. I think in the trail bike market, I think that's still growing. I think that's still a big market as far as getting kids into it but then i think there's a there's a gap as far as oh i'm not getting you a race bike because you know they think uh you know i don't want you to be like a travis pastrana and do backflips or something crazy like that you know (laughs) and 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 parents are protective i mean nowadays it seems like it's co-parenting so you have a mom and a dad that both have sort of an equal job or an equal paycheck where it wasn't like that back in the day so that's changed a lot of things i think the moms have more of a say-so than what they used to mm-hmm. back when I was younger. And uh, it, everything has, has just changed along with the industry. So, I mean, you got people that just absolutely love it and they'll, they'll be there forever. And just like you got two-strokes and four-stroke people, I mean, it's never going to change. It's just how do you get more people involved? And I think like with Fly Racing coming out with their, their new uh, – their new helmets and everything with the Rion and stuff in it to protect your head from concussions and so on. The technology of helmets alone has grown crazy and it's evolving at a rapid pace. And I think that'll help uh, mom and dads think it's it's a little safer, or give them a little bit more protection to let them take the next step to maybe a race bike and you know and and, and going going further. These are all good signs, Brock, for sure. I mean, your what your points about trail bikes, increasing sales in trail bikes is a trend. That's your, that's what they call your future addressable market. So as that grows, those riders get into bigger bikes, or maybe they shift over to UTVs. But they're all still in that power sports world. So that's that's all good signs, and we're glad to see it. Our time's wrapping up here, Brock. We really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about the industry and sharing some great stories about your past. I. Still chuckling about the Ricky Carmichael Stinky Fingers story. I think that's great. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna probably re-listen to that one many times over. It's great. Thanks again for coming on the show and you're welcome back anytime. No problem, guys. All right, thank you, Brock Sellard, for joining us on Pit Pass. What do we got in upcoming news, Dave? All right, so upcoming racing, we've got Supercross in Atlanta this coming weekend, Saturday night on February 29th, which should be great. We've also got Kicker Arena Cross in Salt Lake City. That'll be Friday night on February 28th and then Saturday on the 29th. And then the week after, they're back GNCC racing at the Wild Boar in Palatka, Florida. That's on March 7th and 8th. That's going to be a big one. 
GNCC is awesome. They had a round this last weekend, was the first round. Uh, some good racing. The man who's been dominating it for the last, I don't know, seems like 10 years, Caleb Russell, won, uh, won this last weekend. But our friend of the show, Josh Strang, got third. So Go Stranger. Yeah, how about that? That's awesome. Yeah, so the GNCC series I thought was interesting. Uh, same thing in the, the, the WXC class, the women's class. Becca Sheets just continues to win everything in that class. And Taylor Jones got second. So if you get a chance to go to a GNCC, you should. It's one of the greatest off-road events, and it's just it's 2,000 people going through the woods at motocross speed for two hours. I think I'm going to try and make that Indiana round this year. Everyone says they, the riders we talk to say they love it. That one I can reach in a reasonable amount of time in my car, bring uh, bring a scooter or something, and uh, I like the area. I yeah, enjoy it's going pretty to cool. That's, every once in a while. that's a great venue. I've been there for that one, and it's it's usually the largest one of the year because it's usually the final, and it's they have the largest attendance for the year. And it's uh, that facility's got the room. I mean, they they can really pack them in. But talk about a great time. You're talking me into it, Dave. Well, thank you again to our guests for being with us today, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app where you'll get alerts when the new episodes are uploaded. And, of course, make sure you're also following us on Twitter and Facebook and pitpassmoto.com. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson, social media contributor Chris Bishop, and our producer Leah Longbreak and audio engineers Sean Rule Hoffman, and Eric Colt now. I'm PJ. And I'm Dave. See you next week on Pit Pass. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.